morning. Please turn with me this morning to Acts chapter 27. Acts 27. We're going to be covering all the way from verse 1 in chapter 27 through chapter 28, verse 15. The last time I preached, we talked about how Paul was in prison in Caesarea and had appealed to Caesar. He was awaiting a ship to take him to Rome. And that brings us up to, the, to Acts 27 this morning. As I said, we'll be covering all of chapter 27 and the first part of chapter 28, which tells the story of Paul's sea voyage to Rome. This is the most detailed description of a sea voyage in all of ancient literature. Scholars who study ancient Greek and Roman history learn more about ancient sea travel from this passage than from any other source. The problem for pastors is, what does an ancient sea voyage have to do with modern life? Are there any lessons we can learn from this voyage? I guess we'll have to wait and see. But first, let's pray. Lord, show us what an ancient sea voyage has to do with us. Impress your message on our hearts this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul had been in prison in Caesarea for two years. The day of his departure to Rome had now arrived. Unfortunately for him, he was not going as a tourist, but as a prisoner. The Romans took Paul, along with some other criminals, down to the seaport of Caesarea. On the map in your bulletin, Caesarea is on the lower right side, a little north of uh, north and east of Jerusalem. This sermon will make more sense to you if you follow the arrows from Caesarea as we go. Anyway, at Caesarea, they were placed under the authority of a centurion named Julius and boarded a grain ship. Verse 2, when Luke says that Aristarchus was with us, Luke was including himself on the trip. So what we have here is an eyewitness account of the journey, which explains why the description of this journey is so detailed. The next day, they arrived up the coast at Sidon, which on your map is just a little north of Caesarea. Paul was an unconvicted Roman citizen, so he was given more liberty than other prisoners. Verse 3 says, Julius, in his kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. These friends are undoubtedly members of the church in Sidon, who are demonstrating Christian love and hospitality. And my guess is that Julius was also a Christian, or he probably wouldn't have trusted Paul quite so much with freedom. According to verse 4, when they left Sidon, they put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Now, to pass under the lee of Cyprus means to sail on the side of the island that provides the most protection from shelter or most protection or shelter from the wind. From there, according to verse 5, they sailed off the coast of Kilikia and Pamphylia and landed at Myra in Lycia. We know from ancient history that Myra was a major port for Alexandrian grain ships. Not surprisingly, therefore, they find a grain ship headed to Rome from Alexandria, Egypt. Egypt was like the breadbasket of the ancient Mediterranean world. Nearly one-third of Rome's, Rome's grain came from Egypt. If a fleet of grain ships from Alexandria sunk in a storm, Rome had to begin food rationing. Setting sail from Myra, according to verse 7 and 8, they again started having problems with the wind. They sailed under the shelter of Crete, eventually arriving at a place called Fairhavens, near the town of Lycia. 
verse 9, Luke adds that sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. Paul was traveling in 59 AD, and on that year, the Day of Atonement fell on October 5th. October was during a very risky time for Mediterranean sea travel back then. The increasing frequency of the storms, and the often overcast skies and fog, made navigation by sun and stars very difficult. Nevertheless, the money from the grain was apparently worth the risk to some sea ship owners, so this ship was traveling right in the middle of the risky period. The captain knew this, of course, but so did Paul. Paul was a seasoned traveler who had been on numerous sea voyages. So in verses 9 and 10, Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives also. To the centurion, however, Paul was just another prisoner. So verse 11 tells us that instead of listening to what Paul said, the centurion followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. In verse 12, we learned that the harbor of Fair Havens, where they were, was unsuitable to winter in. This probably means that the ship was not well protected from winter storms in that harbor. And beside that, they didn't even have a Walmart or McDonald's. So the majority of the crew decided to sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. From mid-November to February, the Mediterranean storms would get so bad that all sea travel would shut down. The ship's crew was hoping to spend the winter in Phoenix, which, as you can see on the map, was just a little further up the coast from Fairhavens. They would never make it. According to verses 14 to 17, a hurricane force wind arose, drove them off course away from Crete, until they passed into the shelter of a small island called Cauda. The situation was getting serious. According to verses 16 and 17, they hoisted the lifeboat aboard. Back in those days, the lifeboat for a ship was often towed behind. In stormy weather, the lifeboat could be blown into the back of a wooden ship and risk serious damage. So they thought it better to pull it on board. Then they also passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. This is called frapping the ship. The ropes were used to help keep the boards of the ship from ripping apart. The situation was truly getting pretty scary. Verse 17 says they were afraid they were run aground on the sandbars of Syrtis. So they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. The sandbars of Syrtis were off the coast of North Africa and were feared by ancient sailors. If the ship continued to be driven southward by the storm, they could be shipwrecked on these sandbars. So they lowered the anchor in an attempt to slow down the ship as it was dragged along by the storm. Some translations say they lowered the sails also, and they certainly would have done that too. Verse 18, Luke says, We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. The cargo, or in this case grain, was how the owner of the ship paid for the trip and made a profit. So when they throw the cargo overboard, it was an indication of how serious the trip had become. On the third day, things start looking even more desperate. So according to verse 19, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. In other words, they started throwing overboard just about everything or anything that was not necessary for survival, saving some of the food for grain. 
We learn in verse 20 that neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging. Now imagine that you are in a violent storm in a small wooden ship somewhere in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. You've been tossed around in this storm, not for hours, but for days. You have no radios or satellite phones to call for help, no GPS or modern navigation equipment, and you haven't seen the sun or star for days. You have almost no idea where you are in a sea even longer than the distance between Minneapolis and Miami, and all you can see is high waves, and they are breaking over the sides of your ship. You throw everything overboard to lighten the ship, but that doesn't help much. It certainly doesn't bring you any closer to land. Your food eventually runs out, and your water has also been rationed, so you're hungry, thirsty, cold, and wet. There's no TV or radio. It's too dark and turbulent to read, so all you can do is sit there and think about your loved ones back home and what it will feel like to drown in the cold salt water of the Mediterranean Sea. In verse 20, Luke says, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Verse 21, however, says, after they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, man, you should have taken my advice and not sailed from Crete, and then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. <laughs> It sounds like Paul is saying, see, I told you so. Some see this as an example of Paul's arrogance or abrasiveness. But it may have just been Paul's attempt to establish his credibility. In other words, they had ignored him the last time. He may be suggesting that maybe they should pay more attention to what he's about to say. In verse 22, Paul adds, but now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Now, I'm sure they probably thought, yeah, right. But Paul continues in verse 23. Last night, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me, said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Sure enough, after two weeks, they finally saw land. As they got closer to shore, the sailors dropped four anchors to keep them from being dashed against the rocks. But in verse 30, the sailors, apparently not convinced that the anchors would keep the ship from being shipwrecked on the rocks, pretended they were going to lower more anchors from the bow or the front of the ship. Instead, they let a lifeboat down in an attempt to flee the ship. Verse 31, Paul warned the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Now, this is puzzling because Paul had received a message from an angel of God saying that no one would lose their life. So why would Paul now say, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved? Doesn't Paul believe God's message that no one would lose their life? Of course he does. But as theologians today would say, Divine sovereignty does not eliminate human responsibility. God had ordained that everyone on the ship would be kept alive through the storm, but he uses Paul's warning to accomplish that purpose. I once heard a story about a young preacher preaching on the need for missionary outreach. 
He was preaching in a strongly Calvinistic church where they believed in predestination. One of the elders spoke up and said, Sit down, young man. When God wants to save the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. This elder was wrong. God uses people to accomplish his purposes. Divine sovereignty does not eliminate human responsibility. It's God's job to save people, but it is still our responsibility to tell them. God works his sovereign purposes through us. Anyway, this time the centurion sides with Paul. Verse 32, he orders the soldiers to cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Eventually, according to verse 41, the ship did run aground into a sandbar. The bow, the bow struck fast. The stern, or back of the boat, was battered by the surf and began breaking in pieces. Verse 42 says the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. It sounds rather harsh and cruel until you realize that under Roman law, if you were responsible for a prisoner who got free, you would receive whatever penalty that prisoner was to receive. If the prisoner was sentenced to slavery, you would become a slave. If the prisoner was scheduled to be eaten by lions, you would face the lions. Verse 43, however, says that the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest were to get there on planks or other pieces of ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. This must have been a very brave centurion. He was risking his life to save Paul. In chapter 28, verses 1 to 5, we find that they were landed on the island of Malta, as you can see on the map. It was a very cold and rainy day that day, and Paul was helping to gather wood for a fire. When a snake bit him, he wouldn't let go. Paul shook it into the fire. He was then sued by PETA for cruelty to animals. Well, okay, maybe not. Actually, the islanders thought he, Paul must be a murderer and that the goddess Justice would soon take his life as a penalty for his crime. Much to their surprise, Paul suffered no ill effects from the snake. According to verse 7, there was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. And again, Luke talks about us. He includes himself. This is an eyewitness report. It turns out that Paul's, uh, Paul ends up healing Publius's father, who was sick with fever and dysentery. Then others on the island who were sick also came, and Paul healed them as well. The ship's crew and passengers had to spend the winter in Malta for three months. And now remember that ancient sea travel on the Mediterranean was risky from mid-September to mid-November. And then for three months, from mid-November to mid-February, the sea got so bad that all sea travel shut down completely because it was just too dangerous to travel. When the Mediterranean Sea opened up again for sea travel by the end of February, the crew and the passengers were placed aboard another ship from Alexandria, Egypt, that had also spent the winter on the island. According to verse 12, they eventually got to Syracuse, not in New York, but on the island of Sicily. They then sailed about 75 miles from Syracuse to Regium on the toe of Italy, 
and then 200 miles further to Patoli on the Gulf of Naples. It would still be another week's journey overland before they got to Rome. In spite of what we might consider overwhelming odds against him, Paul finally reached his destination in Rome, just as God said he would. So is there anything we can learn from this travel narrative? Well, first, let me give a few observations on Luke's historical reliability. Chapter 27, verse 37 says, there were 276 people on board this ship. Some critics once said this was an error since ships weren't that big that big back in the first century. But Josephus, who lived back in Paul's time, refers to a ship carrying 600 people back in those days. Sometimes it seems like critics are just looking for excuses not to believe. Some have attacked Luke's account by pointing out that there are no poisonous snakes on Malta. But just because there are no poisonous snakes on Malta today, doesn't mean they didn't have poisonous snakes 2,000 years ago. After all, Ireland once had poisonous snakes, but no longer does. Such ridiculous attacks on the Bible show how desperate some critics are to discredit it. Now, I want you to all also to notice the detail on this trip. They set sail from Caesarea to Sidon to Snidus to Fairhavens, hoping to reach Phoenix, but blown off course past Cauda, eventually landing on Malta. From there, they sailed up to Syracuse in Italy, and then on to Regium and Petoli, finally arriving in Rome. In every case, Luke gets his geography right. In fact, chapter 27, verse 16, says they passed under the shelter of Coda, which is just an, a tiny island, only four miles long, and not likely to have been on any ancient maps. It's not even on our map. Remember, they didn't have Google Maps back then. And what maps they did have were often inaccurate, very expensive, and hard to come by. So about the only people in the world who even knew Cauda existed would be those, those who sailed on this route. And yet Luke gets all of his geography right. This is consistent with the idea that the author of Acts was on the ship with Paul and was an eyewitness to the events he recorded on this trip. A second observation. The main lesson of this passage, I think, is that this passage teaches us that God will accomplish his purposes regardless of how improbable, dangerous, or even life-threatening the circumstances seem to be. Not even hurricane-force winds at sea could keep God from accomplishing his purpose. We can always take comfort that there is never a time when God sits up on his throne, wringing his hands, thinking, Oh, no, what am I going to do now? Nothing takes God by surprise. Not Antifa, not Iran, not North Korea or riots in America, not even elections. God will always ultimately accomplish his purposes. We have to trust that God is working out his purposes, even if life doesn't make sense to us. We also have to make sure that we read this story in the broader context of Acts. The comfort that God will ultimately accomplish his purposes and that Paul was kept safe through the storm does not mean that we will always be kept safe through the storms of life. We have to remember that earlier in Acts, Stephen and the Apostle James were murdered. Paul and Silas were beaten and imprisoned. 
In fact, many early Christians were persecuted, some even to death. Christians do not always survive storms, sicknesses, or snake bites. But we will ultimately win in the end when Jesus returns. And as Paul says in Romans 8:18, 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In the meantime, we need to keep our focus on Christ and take comfort in the fact that ultimately Jesus wins and we win with him. Let's pray. Lord, in the midst of so much turmoil in the world, we thank you for the assurance that nothing takes you by surprise and that you work all things ultimately out for our good to those who love you. In the meantime, Lord, help us stand strong and to honor you in all that we do.